Well, good morning. It is a big day today. Uh, of course, it's Mother's Day, which is such a very important day uh, because it always reminds us that Father's Day is just five weeks away. <laughs> Seriously, uh, moms, uh, we are uh, so very grateful for you, and uh, we do honor you uh, today. It is also a big day because uh, this is our final day uh, for worship here in the Sprung. Uh, we are only one week away from grand opening. Anybody want to say amen? And um, we're so excited. And next week, of course, we're going to be gathering across the way in our new worship center, uh, gathering at new times, 9 o'clock and uh, 1045. It's going to be a great time. I hope you'll be there. I hope you'll invite others to come and join you as we just celebrate uh, the goodness of God uh, to us as a, a faith family here at Southwinds. Well, one of the uh, very best parts of being a parent is making our kids happy, right? I mean, just think of all the things that you have done to make your kids happy. Ever buy a bike to make your kids happy? Ever take your kids to Disneyland, even though you can't stand theme parks, but you want to make your kids happy? Ever spend money on some electronic thing that is not worth what it costs, but it, it makes your kid happy? Or how about this one? Ever get a kitten? Every idiot, I mean, um, every person, parent willing to do that. I'm just kidding, okay? Cat lovers. Um, but to be honest, you know, it makes us feel good when they jump up and down with excitement, doesn't it? Uh, it's just that moment for us when life is good because as parents, we want our kids to be happy. Well, today's message is about how some of the seemingly good things that we do in our kids' lives can actually undermine their spiritual foundation. It's kind of a warning. And if you're here and you don't have kids, let me just assure you that this message is also for you uh, because I'm assuming you have parents, right? Can I just do a real quick check? If you either have um, parents or you are a parent, would you raise your hand? I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, I figured it was a universal, unanimous thing. And my point there is that sometimes the way we were parented may have undermined our spiritual foundation as well. Uh, here's what I'm talking about. One of the most common and most destructive choices that parents make with their kids gets summed up like this, when we often say, I just want my kids to be happy. Ever said that? Well, most of us have. And my guess is that we want more than just that, even if sometimes we actually do live like that's all we want, for our kids to be happy. I wonder if you've ever considered the potential destruction in that desire. Now, let me tell you about some of the people that I have met as a pastor over the years. Uh, details have been changed uh, to protect me. Uh, She's a 30-something woman whose marriage is under stress because of financial decisions that she and her husband have been making for some time now. And in her frustration, she whines at me, what did I ever do to deserve this? As if her whole life is supposed to be happy. As if her whole world is supposed to be green lights, blue skies, desserts without calories. As if everything is supposed to work out for her own 
personal happiness. And when it doesn't, then God isn't doing his part. I, I wonder if any of this came from the way her parents raised her. And then there was a man, almost 40. He's being unfaithful to his wife. He's committing adultery, and he knows what the Bible says about adultery, but literally this guy says to me, I just think God wants me to be happy, and this makes me happy. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? What about your devastated wife? What about your kids who may experience the fallout from this for the rest of their lives? Do you really think that despite of how clear God makes it in the Bible, that fidelity honors him, fidelity is best for us, that what really matters is that you need to be happy? So where does this kind of thinking come from? Well, if we were to backtrack it, it would go all the way back to the beginning of each person's life. When we were all born, just like Adam and Eve, we were all born with a sinful nature, born with the idea that the whole world revolves around us. Everybody who's ever had a child knows how that works when they're little. It's 2 a.m. and you're trying to sleep. The baby starts crying and, and now everything revolves around the baby. And that's actually the way it should be at this point. We, we do crazy things in the middle of the night uh, to make sure the baby's happy. But for some of us, we never get beyond that. And the baby never gets beyond that. See, if you've ever maybe been the parent of a teenager and they can't see beyond the end of their nose and you have found yourself thinking something has to change, I mean, you have to realize the universe does not revolve around you. And you know what I'm talking about. And part of God's plan for parents is right here, that we help our children move from thinking that they're the center of the universe to realizing that they're not. Let me put it this way. You can write this down. Your job as a parent is to guide your children to shift from a man-centered to a God-centered view of the world. That's your job as a parent. But some parents really can't do this because, first of all, they don't have a God-centered view of the world themselves. And, and too often today, too many parents have put their children at the center of their world. They live kid-centric lives. The reality is we were all created to be worshipers, and we all worship someone or something. We're wired to worship. And if we're not loving and worshiping God first, like we talked about last week, then here's what happens. Whatever we treasure first most moves into that place. And we actually start worshiping whatever it is we treasure. Now, if you're a parent, you should treasure your kids but if God is not in the rightful place in your heart and life, then it is not uncommon in our day for parents to actually start worshiping your children. Now, here's the thing I know as a pastor. No one here would ever admit to that. They would never admit to that if I asked them. But let me ask you some questions. You do some diagnosis there in your seat. What would you do to make your kids happy? Would you spend money you don't have to buy things you really don't want to impress people you know you don't like just to make your kids happy? Would you forego saving for the future and be unwise with finances? Would you dishonor God by refusing to take the first part of what he gives you and give it back to him, but you spend it all on your kids just to make them happy? 
Would you yell at a coach who isn't treating your kid the way you think he should be treated? He doesn't let him play enough. Would you show your animosity toward a teacher who's challenging your child because it's making your, your child half unhappy? How about this one? Would you lie to your spouse? Don't tell your mom. Don't tell your dad. Just to make your kid happy. Would you rescue your child from a mess they've created by their own foolishness or maybe even by their own rebellion because you cannot stand for them not to be happy? Would you, in the end, put your child's will above God's will in your value system so that you're actually more concerned about them being happy than about God being pleased? Some serious questions. Here's something I want you to know. Maybe you've never thought about this, but we wound our children when we worship them. We hurt them. When they're at the center of our universe, we put on them a weight that they cannot bear, a weight that God never intended for them to bear. We wound them. And here's why. We reinforce their sinful nature when we do that. We reinforce their natural state of mind that the world revolves around them, that it's really all about their happiness. We wound them because God didn't design the world that way. It's not how the world works. I want us to look today at a passage that's really all about shifting from a man-centered to a God-centered view of the world. Maybe you've already got it open. It's Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, if you haven't. And This book of Isaiah is a prophecy. Uh, Isaiah is a prophet who lived about 750 years before the time of Jesus. And really, his whole message of the book, it's really all about God. That's what life is really all about. And maybe if you were to put Isaiah's message into a sentence, it would be something like this. Life is about God and God's glory. I want us to read uh, Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. And In this passage, we're going to encounter Isaiah seeing God for who he really is, and then that changing everything in Isaiah's life. Listen to the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Now, now, Isaiah 6 is really about shifting from a man-centered 
to a God-centered view of life. It's about realizing that instead of life being all about our happiness, it's about God's glory. It's about loving God and worshiping God first, like we talked about last week. Some of you have read or maybe studied this passage before, and maybe right now you're thinking that this passage is foremost about God's holiness, and it's about how and why we are to worship this God of holiness, and then it's about how out of that we go into the world to tell people about God's holiness and glory, and you're right to be thinking that. But what I want to do today is take the principles we see there and focus them in, apply them to our families and to raising kids. I want us to look at four lessons that teach a God-centered view of the world, lessons that we ought to be passing on to our children. Here's the first one. Go ahead and write this down in your notes. Teach your kids that sometimes life is hard. Do you ever do that? For many of us, it's kind of interesting, have you noticed this life has to get hard for us to look at God and trust God and see God for who he really is. Now, that's why the passage starts the way it does. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, kind of hit the pause button. In the year that King Uzziah died. If, if you were Jewish in that day, you would have known exactly what this was telling you. In our day, it might mean something like this. In the year the Twin Towers fell. In the year that terrorists flew airplanes into the World Trade Center. In that year, when the world seemed to change, when all the things around us seemed to be falling apart, in that year, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. See, King Uzziah had been king for 52 years. There were so many people living in that day who had never known a day when Uzziah wasn't king, and the economy was good, the military was strong, the people felt protected and safe. They were even taking back some of the land they had lost to their enemies, the Philistines. There was this general state of peace and calm because Uzziah was king. But then he died. So what happens when the king dies? How do you respond when the circumstances of your life go south, when you lose a job, when you get a diagnosis of cancer, when something goes wrong with one of your kids? Maybe it's something very simple. Maybe your car breaks down and you don't have the money to fix it. What do you do when challenging circumstances come your way? And what we see here is what Isaiah did, and what he did was he turned to God. There was this shift, and he met God in a way he never had before, and that encounter with God changed everything. God grew large, and all of Isaiah's problems grew small. Isaiah is just saying, in the year that everything was going south, I I looked to heaven, and I saw that even though the king was not on his throne, the real king was still on his throne. God was still in control. Now, here's the application. It's just a simple question. Are you helping your kids to know that life is hard sometimes? Do you ever tell them that? Or are you afraid that would kind of spoil their happiness? Are you teaching your kids that life is hard sometimes? Isaiah learned a second lesson We need to teach our kids. You can write this down too. Teach your kids that when life is hard, God is sovereign. 
See, Isaiah's prophecy, the entire book really is teaching us that, to see that the whole world is in relationship to God, is to be oriented to God and not the other way around. We are to see God for who he is. And when we see this, when we see that God is sovereign, it gives us the power to have peace even when life is hard. And we see this specifically in those first four verses. God is sovereign. And again, I want to ask the question, are you teaching, explicitly teaching, telling your kids that God is sovereign? And the thing is, when, when trials come for people who just want their kids to be happy, they don't have peace. Trials come, and we end up saying, what did I ever do to deserve this? I mean, is like God mad at me or something? I don't know if you've ever thought those things, said those things. Most of us have. But when we do, the basic assumption is I'm at the center of the universe, and God will act on my behalf, and God will keep my world happy. And when my world is not happy, then either God isn't doing his job, or I must have done something wrong. This is why we need to turn to God and worship God, because when we worship God truly, we see the world as it truly is. And we talked about this not too long ago, and I think most of us know this, but as parents, we shouldn't give our kids everything they want. Are we clear on this? Why? Well, the answer is because they don't know to want all the right things. And wise parents know this. Actually, if we're wise parents, we will try to form what they want, to shape the things they're longing for. And this is actually what worship does in our lives. When we worship God and see God for who he truly is, it shapes our heart's desire. The more we worship God, the more it shapes us, and the more we begin to see his grand purposes for life and for our lives and all of the challenges that we face in life. As you've probably heard it said before, we begin to see that God is more concerned about our character than our comfort. We see that God is more concerned about our holiness than our happiness. And so when trials come into our lives and we look to God, we can find ourselves saying, in the year of my parents' divorce, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. In the year the stock market went haywire and my retirement got wrecked, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. In the year I lost my job, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. In the year I was diagnosed with cancer, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. And when we see him on his throne, he is high and lifted up, which reminds us that he is always above all of the stuff of the world. It reminds us that he is not shaken ever, not shaken by the poisonous politics of our nation, not shaken by shootings in schools. God is not shaken when the stock market or the housing market craters, and God is not shaken by my unhappy teenager. See, God stands above all of that, God is not shaken when kings die or nations struggles because his hand always remains on the controls of the universe. 
See, Isaiah comes into the temple, and Isaiah sees this, this spectacular scene of God in all his glory. He sees God being worshipped by these unbelievable beings, these powerful seraphim. Now, the Hebrew word for seraphim means burning ones. And it's a, a little picture of how they must have appeared, how glorious and magnificent they looked to Isaiah. You know, sometimes we think of angels, and we, our minds go to like precious moments figurines or something. That is not ever what the Bible depicts for us in angels. These are powerful beings, unbelievably magnificent. But in God's presence, they humble themselves and they cover their eyes and they cover their feet. They worship God as they fly before him, ever ready to serve him, proclaiming over and over that he is holy. He is holy, holy, holy. God is pure and righteous and good and loving. In other words, everything that we are not, God is. And that's why we worship him. And, and when we worship him, it actually, it actually changes everything. And there is so much power in that. Did, did you notice that it says the room shook? See, God's holiness shakes the earth. Now, here's, here's the point. When you see God as sovereign, when you know he's in control, you can have peace even when your life is hard. And some of you, I know, need to hear that today because your life right now is very hard. Maybe you have a long list of all the things that are hard. May you be reminded that God is on his throne and he loves you. And when you know that, when you live by that, you can have peace even in the midst of trials. And if you know that, here's my question for you. Are you teaching that to your kids? Are, are you telling your kids, helping them to understand that the God you worship, they worship, he's in control? We need to let them know how that works out in our lives. We need to teach them. Here's the third thing that we should teach our kids. We should teach them that it's better to be holy than happy. Now, after Isaiah witnessed this heavenly worship of God, and he sees the Lord, it actually moves him to speak. But notice he doesn't speak to God or even about God. He, he, he says something about himself. And this just reminds us, whenever we see God as he truly is, we see ourselves as we truly are. Has that ever happened to you? See, you find yourself saying, I don't really understand myself, then I'll tell you the best way to get towards that and start gaining a grasp on that. If you want to understand yourself, you need to understand God. And the more you understand God, the more you understand who you truly are and how you should live your life. See, when I see God as the center of the universe not me, in that moment, this is what Isaiah says, verses 5 through 7, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. See, when you see God as he truly is, you will think, I am ruined. I need God to restore me, and, and worship 
causes me to see myself for who I really am. Worship shows me my needs. And, and actually, this is sometimes the, the very thing that keeps certain people, some people away from church. Some people they come to church and they get reminded of how sinful they are and they find themselves thinking, I don't want to go to church. I just feel guilty when I go there. The truth is, that's actually a good gift from God when you're guilty. You know, if I had a disease, I would want to know so I could pursue healing. And when we see our brokenness, then God can heal us. When we see our sinfulness, then God can forgive us. And this is what must happen in all of our lives for us to be made right with God. It is only when you admit your lostness, your helplessness, when you say, God, I need you. I cannot do anything about what I find myself in. I cannot make myself right with you. It's only when we do that. Here's what happens next. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar with it. He touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. It's a great thing to have your guilt taken away, to have your sin atoned for. Do you know what that feels like? Do you know what it feels like to have the weight of any sin you've ever committed lifted off you, atoned for, for God to make you clean? Do you know? The Bible teaches us that God did this for us by sending his only son, Jesus. Jesus came to earth and he took on himself our sin on the cross to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, and that is pay for our sins. We need to feel the weight of our guilt, the weight of our sin, in order to appreciate the forgiveness that God gives. Isaiah, later on in his prophecy, tells about the coming of Jesus. Very familiar uh, portion of Scripture is in Isaiah 53. Here, here's what is written. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, God took all of our sin and laid it on Jesus. Jesus died on the cross in our place. And this is the heart of the Christian faith of what we believe, that you cannot make yourself right with God. See, in the same way that those seraphim had to touch Isaiah's lips, Jesus alone can bring the atonement and bring the freedom from guilt that we need. Jesus alone is our hope. And when we worship, that's when we realize that. That's when we see that we need him. It is only when we worship God first that we can live out of the forgiveness for our sins. Again, I want to ask you a question. I want to make this very, very, very specific to what we're thinking about today. Have you ever considered that it is your job as a parent to help your children confess their sins to God? Have you ever thought of that? This is not about shaming or condemning them. This is about you as a humble sinner in need of forgiveness yourself, helping them to see their sin and then to walk with them to the foot of the cross. So you should be part of this 
as a parent, when they first give their lives to Christ. And then you should help them find forgiveness as little Christ followers along the way as they sin. I'm just kind of checking. Do your kids still sin ever? (laughs) It's going to happen. So you help them find forgiveness. You help them know what it means to be honest with God, what it means to ask God for forgiveness, what it means to receive and accept cleansing. And by the way, let me give you a real practical tip. Do you know the best way to teach them this? The very best way for you to teach them this is for you to confess your sin against them to them and ask them for forgiveness. Some of you can't do that, or you don't think you can. See, we're parents, and we've known, many of us, Jesus a lot longer than them, and we still sin, amen? And sometimes we sin against our kids, amen? I was a lot quieter, amen? And so if those things are true, and they are, then sometimes we need to say to them, sweetheart, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. Will you forgive me? And when you do that, you are telling your child, you are modeling for your child how it is that someone comes to God and asks for forgiveness. You are discipling them. You are training them. I'm just telling you, are you teaching them these things that are so very important? Let me just say it again. It is far better to be forgiven than guilty. It is far better to be holy than happy. Are you a parent who longs for your kids to be holy enough To allow them not to be happy sometimes. This is such an important lesson. Teach your kids it's better to be holy than happy. Here's the final lesson. Teach your kids to find a bigger purpose than their happiness. After God forgives Isaiah in this passage, cleanses him from sin, God does this incredible thing. God invites Isaiah to join him and be a part of what God himself is doing in the world. We see this in verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. So God is calling Isaiah to join him in what he's doing. What's God doing? Well, God's people, Israel, are straying from him. And when God's people stray from him, people like us, God doesn't just cast his people aside. God keeps working in our lives, drawing us back to himself because we were made for him. And just think about it. On a day like this especially, some of you landed at church today because God is at work in your life. Some of you are thinking, oh, the only reason I'm at church today is my mom made me come. Um, (laughs) Well, that may be true, but maybe God's working through that. 
Maybe if you look around you, you'll see that God has sent people into your life and, and he's using those people to work in your life. And I'm telling you, he's doing that because he loves you. Because Isaiah truly worships God, out of that, he's compelled to be part of what God is doing in this world. And this is what always happens when we truly worship God first, when we love God first, like we talked about last week, when we don't put our happiness first. God always gives us a purpose for life, invites us to be a part of what he is doing in this world. And I want to tell you, parents, when you make it your goal to just keep your kids happy, you are settling for so little. Our kids' happiness is so small, so superficial, so temporary when it's compared to the grand purpose that God invites all of us to be part of. I read this C.S. Lewis quote last week, and many of you asked about it, so I decided to use it again. And uh, here it is. Indeed, he writes, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. You know, when you aim first at heaven, it's amazing how you also get earth thrown in. But when you aim first at earth, it's uncanny how you don't get heaven or earth. You see, when we teach our kids to make God central and serve others before themselves, we give them something bigger than themselves, and their souls will lean into it because they are just like us. We are all longing to be part of a purpose greater than who we are, so great that it is centered in God. Now, some of you maybe don't kind of like some of what I'm saying and maybe you're kind of thinking, well, shouldn't we just let kids be kids? Come on, Pastor Mike, don't be so serious. You know, chill, relax. I mean, one day they're going to grow up, they'll get old enough, they'll understand God's the center of the universe and it's not them. And, you know, then they can start thinking about other people as well. And my first response is looking around at our culture is just to be Dr. Phil for a moment and say, how's that working? And I'll answer the question. It's not. But I have two specific questions, really. Uh, maybe, first of all, are you not sure that you're kind of living vicariously through your kids and you're enjoying their childhood more than they are? And then second, when does that really happen? When is this really going to take place, this shift? I mean, we're, we're saying the shift will happen at some point where it's not about them, where they get it, that it's about God and it's about all God is doing in the world, but when? And here's the truth. Studies have shown for years and years and years that the vast majority of people who, who come to faith in Christ, who follow Christ, do it before they're 18 years of, of age. The truth of the matter, if you as a parent 
fail to do what God is telling you to do, and I'm trying to put this as bluntly as I can, if you fail to do this, the odds get higher and higher that your kids will never come to this place. Now, I'm not saying people don't come to faith after they're 18. There are many of you in this room right now, that's your story. But I am saying this is reality. This is the way it works so often. Why would we wait? I am saying that it should take place at the earliest possible time so that they can begin to live for God now because their soul is really, truly made for something great. This is true about all of us. John Piper was getting at this when he wrote these words a few years ago. He said, we are all starved for the glory of God, not self. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. Why do we go? Because there is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is in beholding self. See, our happiness is so small, so superficial, so temporary in light of God's glory and God's great purpose in the world. And it is our, ha- our happiness that's going to be found most of all the more we know God. The author Donald Miller tells a story about a friend of his who was struggling with his daughter. This story uh, actually took place a few years ago, so you'll, you'll see some of the dated references. But his friend uh, had a daughter, and she was dating a boy that the friend called a loser goth dude. Uh, they had found some marijuana in her bedroom. The friend was all torn up inside. And, and so Donald tells his friend, you know, I've been studying story these days, and I don't know if this applies exactly or not, but it sounds to me like your daughter is looking for a bigger story to be a part of than the story you've given her. The story she's in right now, she thinks she's the cause of your marital problems. And she wants to be a part of a story where she can be a hero. And so maybe she's dating this loser guy, I don't know, maybe to help him. Maybe, maybe she's looking for some adventure, thus the drugs. So, so my question to you is, what kind of story are you providing for your daughter? And he said it felt kind of awkward. He wondered if he'd overstepped his bounds. But about a week later, he said his friend called him back. And this is what his friend said. Let me tell you what I've done. I got my family together the other night, and I told them I'd done some research on the Internet. And there's this village in Mexico where there's a lot of orphans, but there's no orphanage. And so horrible things happen to the children, especially the little girls. This village needs an orphanage, and I think we can provide it. It'll cost about $25,000. Now, we're in debt up to our eyeballs, and I have no idea how we'll do it, but I think over a couple of years we can. What do you think, he asked the family. And he said his wife, whom he had not talked to about this, which, by the way, is a very bad idea, (laughs) said, how in the world are we ever going to afford this? The friend is kind of like putting the whiteboard up on the mantle so they can, you know, brainstorm ideas. And he says, I don't know. Anybody got any ideas? And he told Donald Miller that that night went really bad. But about two weeks later, his daughter came to him and said, Dad, you know that thing about the orphanage? I'm thinking I can put that on my MySpace page, dated reference. Maybe she'd say Instagram today. Maybe she'd say, I'll start a GoFundMe. I don't know. I think I can do that. I can let other people know, and maybe they can become a part of that story. His younger son said, Dad, I know we'll need passports, so I'll get on the Internet and fill out the forms. 
his wife said, I figured out, you know what, we can sell my car and get rid of that payment and use that money that we're saving to provide for this orphanage. A couple more weeks passed. This friend told Donald Miller that his daughter dropped the boyfriend. Why? Well, she was becoming a part of a larger story. Donald Miller draws an application to this whole experience. This is what he says. Make no mistake, parents. Kids are not coming up with their own stories. We are. We are coming up with their stories. If you just want your kids to be happy, the story you're coming up with is so shallow, so superficial, and so unsatisfying. It's an iPhone. It's new clothes. It's a new car. It's whatever they want in the moment, but it is not a grand story with God at the center, with a purpose bigger than life. That young girl wanted to be a part of a story bigger than herself. And once she got that, she knew she didn't need to be dating some loser guy. So the question really, obviously, is this. What kind of story are you providing for your kids? They are longing for a purpose that is bigger than they are. And so this is what I think this passage is teaching us on this Mother's Day, that God gives us a purpose. It's not about us. It's about Him. And and in that, God has forgiven our sins when we see Him for who He is. We see in this story it's better to be holy than happy. And when we know all these things, we can know that we have peace even when life is hard because we know God is in control. And when you put all that together, would not you say that those kind of gifts are greater than momentary happiness? See, this is what happens when we put God at the center, when we worship God and not our precious children. So what must you do? to make this happen, to worship God first, love God first. Some of you are probably hearing this and you think, ah, he's a pastor, just trying to get us to come to church more. Well, that's not what this is about. I mean, you should do that. God commands it, and God commands us to make worship with God's people a priority, but there's a bigger picture. This is about you as parents intentionally putting God first in your life every day of the week, and you figuring out how to model that in your home and teach that to your kids. I mean, I do think it will include things like you making some hard choices uh, about your schedule to put God first in your schedule. You know, if you haven't realized this, let, let, me, let me tell you, worship with God's people is not something you do only when there's not a better offer on the table. You choose to make him a priority. I think it will mean such basic things as, as making a practice of reading your Bible. I mean, have your kids ever seen you with God's Word open? You're just reading it. It's just a part of your day. Have your kids ever seen you praying? And, and by the way, I'm not talking about praying before meals. I mean, that's good, but it needs to be more than that. Have your kids ever heard you out loud praying for them? I mean, do they know how much you love them and how much you love God and how much you want God to work in their lives? Maybe it would mean 
that if you happen to be blessed by God with some extra money, instead of you know, spending that extra money just on something that will make you know, us happy, we, we get the family together and we say, hey, kids, you know, God has blessed us. He's given us some extra you know, beyond what we already do to show our love to him and serve him and give. We're going to take this money and we're going to say, how can we use this money to honor God and to help people? I mean, what a great thing for a family to do. I, I know a family who has several weeks of vacation a year, and their practice is to use one of those weeks just to go and serve somewhere, someone. It's just their way of saying that God is first in their lives, and they, they want to be a part of what God is doing in the world. Uh, so what will it mean for your family? I, I don't know the answer to that question. It may involve choices about sports or competitions of other kind. It may involve you re-looking at some things that have been consuming so much of your family's life. I don't pretend to know the answer to this question for your family. I do know this. If, if, if God comes first, you have to answer that question. Make sure that you're answering it in a way that puts God first. Make sure that your kids know what you believe, how you're living your life. Maybe you're here, and the truth is, Jesus is not a part of your life, and maybe that's where you need to start as a parent. You need to make Jesus the center of your life. You, you need to find a story to tell before you can tell it. If that's the case, then we invite you to receive Jesus today. That can happen when you, you turn from your sins in repentance and you humble yourself before God and you place your trust in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, to forgive your sins and save you from those sins. Wherever you are as a parent, whatever God's next step is for you. The, the challenge today is, will you take it? Will you do what God has told you to do? Will you follow him? Will you make him first, not only in your life, but in the life of your family? I'm going to invite you to bow your heads right now. We're going to pray.